HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that's been making stone ground products for decades. Bob's Red Mill makes it possible to eat healthfully and cook delicious food. Go to bobsredmill.com and use the code TASTEOFTHEPAST for 25% off your order. Hmm, something's fishy. Garum, liquamen, muria, But what's in a name? Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history, and today we are going way back. As, back, as far back as we can probably piece together any recipes and foods and, and uh, flavoring agents that we can find. In fact, specifically, we'll be talking first about fish sauces. Now, I'm sure you, unless you've been living under a rock, you, you are aware of fish sauces in ancient Roman times. In fact, some people say, ooh, that food was so disgusting. They ate all this squishy, fermented stuff. Well, we're here to set the record straight. And we will be talking about garum and liquamen and muria and maybe even relate them to some of what a lot of you may know, the Asian fish sauces that I'm sure you're cooking in some of your Thai foods and and Eastern, Southeast Asian foods. The person I have to talk about it with today is Sally Granger. Sally is the, I'm not going to say one of the, I'm going to say the foremost expert on Roman fish sauces, specifically garum we'll be talking about. And what a background she has, and we'll find out why she got interested in this smelly stuff. She was a former pastry chef. Ah, just think of those delicate pastries and frostings and icings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then on to archaeology as an experimental archaeologist, which kind of led her to be a hands-on food historian. And from a food historian, she dove directly into that vat of smelly fish sauce, and I don't think she's come out yet. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You, um, well, now you and Andrew Dalby wrote the classical cookbook, and then you came out with um, Cooking Apicius right yes. about the same time. 
And then also you and your partner Chris, yeah. um, Grocock wrote the the bilingual, which I love. I have two, actually two edition, two that's, books that's of good. of the um, bilingual edition of Apicius. It's a, a one the wonderful original Roman cookbook. Well, no, it's how original we don't know, but no. but it's wonderful. Just like reading Dante, you have the original language on one page and the facing page. You have the English translation, and that's it right. is a real eye opener for people. But tell me why. Um, why, with with the book that you have, the classical cookbook, which is wonderful, yeah. and the recipes are mostly all yours anyway in that well, book, are they well, not? Yes. I, well, they're the Roman slave cooks, really. I only I only help to interpret. You're them. just a slave, right? <laughs> okay. You were all, also. <laughs> all cooks were slaves. That's yes. right. Yes, yes. So, what's different about cooking Apicius? Well, we started out with Andrew doing the classical cookbook, and I was experimenting with recipes in a modern kitchen. And there's a limit to what you can know okay. with modern equipment, with a gas cooker. And, I, and then I started to experiment with authentic equipment, with charcoal and wood. And I, in a sense, stood in the shoes of a Roman slave cook and learnt very slowly over many, many years to cook Roman food as it sh- should have been cooked and to taste it as it would have really tasted. And so once I learnt those skills, I could then go to the text of Apicius and say we can translate this for a modern audience, but also in a much more accurate way than had previously been translated. Well, it's interesting because for anyone who has ever looked at an ancient, well, even, even an, you know, an early Old English or, or, or early American recipe for that matter, but an, an ancient Roman recipe, if you've tried to read some of the books, or the cuneiform tablets in, yeah. in Babylonia. Very difficult to interpret. They don't tell you a whole no, lot. <laughs> because they're only talking to each other. The cook is talking to the cook through a recipe. So they assume They know. assume all kinds of knowledge. And it's only um, in the last four or five hundred years that recipe books have suddenly been had to be expanded in order to appeal and to, uh, for ordinary people, i.e. the housewife, to understand. Take a pan that's 10 inches yes, wide and put exactly. it on the stove. Yeah, um, It's true. There, you really, you, you have to go into it knowing your way around the kitchen a bit, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. But you've been, you know, it's done, you've, your, adap- your adaptations of the recipes are excellent. Thank you so much. That's so good to know. Because sometimes uh, one, one doesn't always know. I mean, it works for me, but sometimes, uh, you know, when you pass your, your rep... Recipes on, they, they, they can fly and they can do strange things. And people will come back to me and say, well, I didn't make that quite the way. Well, I did make your recipe for the frittata for an event we had the other evening. And I did mention that you didn't say how, how much, much fish, fish sauce, sauce to use. Hey, it depends on the saltiness and the umami. Every bottle of fish sauce is a little bit different. This is the magic of it. So use your taste, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, they always say salt and pepper to taste, so oh, quite. use yes. your taste. Yes. Well, yeah. now you mentioned umami. So let's yeah. let's go there. So fish sauce is, for those of you who are wondering, well, why fish sauce? What is it? Well, certainly you've heard of the new taste, the fifth taste, if you will, taste, right? Umami. It's, it's umami. deliciousness. It's, it's meaty, it's cheesy, it's kind of funky. I always say earthiness. Earthy. Earthiness, yeah. yeah, you get it from parmesan, you get it from anchovies, of course. And the issue is that if you don't have umami in your food, it's bland. And so you only really know what it is when it's not there. Hmm, and then you can taste it and, uh, and suddenly get that explosion in the mouth. There's a recipe I do quite often called a pear patina. It's a, a dessert, but it's got fish sauce in it. And it's odd. People get a bit, bit twitchy about it. 
you take um, cooked pears, you add raisin wine, a bit of pepper, eggs and fish sauce and it's set like a, like a custard and I make it with salt, I make it with fish sauce and I make it with nothing and I offer it to children because they are the ones that are the most honest about their experiences of food and I say which is best and it's always the fish sauce that is chosen because it is exceptionally good and you can't taste the fish and it's just got that it wonderful the, balance. Yeah, it makes the sweet taste sweeter and, the, the, yeah, and yeah. The, you know, the, the mellow custard tastes exactly. mellower. Huh? But when I tell them, of course they change mm, their minds. Right, they turn up their nose. Because right. desserts <laughs> should not have fish in them. Well, they can. <laughs> well, I, I know that you worked in the British Museum um, and, well, you've worked a lot of places. Let me mm. let me let me list a few <laughs> the British Museum and some of the rest. You did a lot of the recipes for events there and for the publications. Uh, yes, yes, because yes. the classical cookbook was through the British Museum. Through the Press. British Museum, yes. And then the Fishbourne Palace and the Roman Baths at Bath, yes. Colchester Castle. Yeah. Not to mention the Getty Villa, uh, this side of the pond at, yes. in L.A. Right. I was food consultant at the Getty for about five years. That was fun. Doing their bank, their, they, their yes. classical period banquets. Yeah, we did ancient greek we did um roman and we did byzantine wow and working with their chefs in their kitchen um to produce something as authentic as possible while also being uh, appealing to a modern american palate which is a difficult balance to get well that's what i always tell people when we do for the culinary historians when we we're cooking recipes um, that match a particular period time period that we're talking about Mm. and you know, sometimes, you know, you have to say, well, make it so that someone really wants to eat it. You don't have to be so rigorous no. to the original that if it's it, the taste, it just isn't there. Well, you know? so many of the recipes don't have quantities. Right. And uh, there was an assumption on, on the part of many scholars who were looking at these recipes initially, uh, and we're talking Latin and Greek academics, who had no real idea about how to cook, never mind how much, how much spice to use. <laughs> and they would make an assumption about spices they reflect wealth they're expensive therefore you would use a lot therefore everything would be overspiced and then you've got added on top the fact that they didn't understand fish sauce and so imagined it was the result of putrefaction and disgusting and then so they defined roman food in terms of these uh, these uh, these um perceptions and of course they were wrong the spices are used with great subtlety uh, and they're quite delicate um, there's a lot of different spices in a sauce, but they're not used in bulk. It's you know you're using teaspoons. Mm-hmm. Oh, as you said, they were expensive. They, they were, were well, they were a lot of them were a lot a lot weren't. Um, but and what's important about spices in in that in that time period is that they are antibacterial, and you don't need a lot to, to retard the bacterial growth. Mm. And so, and that's again, you have said that the fish sauce brings out if without the fish sauce you wouldn't necessarily taste some of those some of those spices, spices. no you wouldn't no no mm. no it, it's um there's a latin word temporal and it's in the recipes a lot and it in the in the context of a recipe it says balance or temper the sauce with fish sauce and it just means add enough taste it to your taste right? taste it yeah <laughs> add add in due proportion until it tastes right hmm Smart, smart cooking mm, yeah. advice, right? Well, what did we? Where? When did we first, um, as a you know, the historians and cooking people? When? Did, where did we first learn of garum? When did we in the we, modern world? In modern world, yeah. Well, it 
actually there's some continuity of, of understanding of it right through until the present day through the Renaissance and into the um, later periods. Uh, some of the texts that we have today, particularly the Geoponica, which yeah. is an agricultural manual from the Byzantine period, wasn't around in the intervening years. And so they didn't have a definitive recipe. Uh, and so they were relying on Pliny. He made references to... He talked a lot about it, but he was a little confused, and we can go right to the heart of the problem now with with Pliny, because he defines garum as a combination of mackerel viscera and blood by association. That's blood and guts, people. (laughs) Blood and guts, blood and guts from mackerel, left uh, uh, to... uh, uh, From later instructions, we know it's left to ferment for a time and it produces this dark pungent very funky taste um and he he doesn't talk about the other fish sauce now if that's garum the other fish sauce is the quaman and it is basically whole small fish little sardine little anchovy yeah how are you gonna how are you gonna gut a little a you little anchovy no no, to put, no, no, no no the guts actually come from either mackerel or tuna mm. and obviously tuna is going to be the best because in a sense it's there's a huge amount yeah. <laughs> it's quite big a fish. Yeah. It's a big fish, a lot of viscera, a lot of blood too. Um, but the other fish sauce is lighter. Um, it's much closer to Thai fish sauce. In mm-hmm. all the essentials, it's the same. The only difference really is that the Roman recipe that we have in the Geoponica talks about 15% by weight for salt. So basically it is, it is just fish and salt. Uh, while um, modern fish sauce uh, from Thailand and Vietnam... 25% minimum, sometimes 40, even sometimes no, 50. So the, the taste in, in the Far East is for a very, very salty product. Mm. And if you take that salt out, what you actually end up with is so much more umami. <laughs> it's, it's a, it becomes much more magical as an ingredient. So warning, don't use any other salt if you're cooking that Thai food. Just no, <laughs> rely no. on the fish sauce. Um, it's interesting because it's someone once asked you, well, well in those... in the original instructions for making uh, the garum or mm. liquamen, mm. it didn't call for salt. But you said, well, I loved what you said. Mm. You said, well, they would have added salt because they just knew to do that. Yes, of course. Yeah. Once again, it's that, that know your way around the kitchen. You yes. know, if you're preserving some food, saving it, you yes. add salt. Right? Absolutely, yes. yes. Yeah. It, would have, it would have gone off. It would have been unpleasant without the salt. Yeah. Actually, what happens when you make fish sauce... Um, is not fermentation um, as such. It's enzyme hydrolysis. More of a lacto. Okay. Uh, uh, so, yes, there's some lactobacillus bacteria. Um, be, I was talking to a scientist la- last night about this, and he said because of the 15% salt, it's low enough to stop the nasty bacteria that we don't want. But it's high enough that um, uh, lactobacillus bacteria can thrive. They are qu- quite like salt. Mm. And therefore, mm. <laughs> it is, there is this um, combination of um, enzyme breakdown of the muscle tissue to harvest the nutrition in the muscle tissue and convert it into a liquid form that you can use as a liquid. But there is also, at the same time, some fermentation going on, and that is going to increase the pH and help to control the bacteria. Yeah. So okay. something all, has to something has to be there to you know. Otherwise it's very safe. This is the no point. mold. You never see mold growing in your you know, in your no. bottle of fish sauce. I, I made quite a lot of fish sauce in a in a um, greenhouse in fish tanks. 
Oh. About 50 litres. I made it in, in fish tanks. Well, that's smart. So but that you can see what's happening. What's happening, yes. yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that, what's happening. But first I want to ask you, yeah. I'm thinking, how did you first... How did you first get interested in wanting to study fish sauce further? Well, I started out as a chef. Then I took my first degree in ancient history. I encountered food historians like Andrew Dolby, who confessed he couldn't cook, he needed help. <laughs> and then then we started work on Apicius. Um, but I realised that uh, I needed... To, uh, the, the things I had to say, I wanted people to hear, as it were, and archaeologists and historians were not hearing it because I wasn't speaking their language. So in order to learn the language of archaeology, I took a, a, an MA at Reading University and you have to do a, dis- a dissertation. And so uh, what defines Roman, in fact, all ancient food in, in the Mediterranean basin is the use of fish sauce. Mm-hmm. And I had to choose a topic that I really wanted to get my teeth into. And, and so I started out on that route. And so we started making it in the first year. I, I did it over two years. So the first summer, I got the fish tanks and the fish and watched it dissolve. And then the following year, we had it all tested. And I, that, that was my dissertation. And it's subsequently, that 24,000-word that, um, document uh, has been published three times in three separate um, formats because I was talking about text, I was talking about amphora, I was talking about fish bones, and I was talking about experimental archaeology. So you actually have four different faculties of it study. Had, that yes, are there. exactly, right, yeah. yes. And it, it's very hard to get your head around all of those topics. Um, well, and you have, you're working on and a book eventually will come out of all that, right? This the is, story <laughs> of Garum uh, is going to be called, yeah. yeah. If they ever stop discovering new things, I mean... Well, I wish that, yes, every shipwreck that turns up is, is complex because you then have to worry about what fish are... Of what fish bones are inside the amphora in in the shipwreck? What shape of amphora? Uh, is there any is there any labels on the amphora written in ink? Sometimes they survive even in the sea. Could you figure there was oil? There was wine. There was well, fish sauce. There and... are three products: oil, wine, and fish sauce. And wherever the Romans went, these things went first, because it's fundamental for a good life to drink the wine. The oil is useful for cooking, but also for light. And the fish sauce makes your food taste good. And so, and in fact, also, not only that, but when these these ingredients, these three ingredients are blended together, you make a definitive dressing called mm. an oinogarum, uh, which you put on your salad, your vegetables, your... Uh, you pour it over your food. It is it is the way in which Roman food was consumed with these sauces. And we're fairly certain that even in the periphery of the Roman world, and for, uh, my knowledge is, is only really about Roman Britain, but we're fairly certain that they were doing it there too. We're trying to prove that they did. At the mm-hmm. moment, we're doing residue analysis of some of the some of the vessels associated with fish sauce uh, that we find in London, in Roman London, and some of them are worn. Some of the residues can penetrate, and we've been testing it, and we've found evidence of certainly um, products derived from grape, products derived from vegetable oils, and animal products. We cannot really say it's fish. We can say it's an animal rather than a plant. Hmm. And so we're, we're testing more and more vessels mm-hmm. to try and find out. So the amphora, are, the amphora are important because of the residues. You don't have to make... I mean, the fish sauce, I thought perhaps they were, you know, they, they were an integral part of the... 
of the making of fish sauce, and yet I know my daughter-in-law makes hers in a, in a wooden, an oak barrel. You yes, know? <laughs> whatever vessel you can make it in. But I think in terms of the bulk process of making Spanish fish sauce and North African fish sauce, huge tanks full of tons and tons of fish, as soon as they have dissolved sufficiently to make uh, an emulsion that flows, that is semi-liquid, this can be... Tran- I, I believe this is what happens. It's not easy to prove. It was transferred to an amphora mm. in this thick, gloopy state. Maybe topped up a little with extra brine, sealed, put in a boat, sent off. And in transit, the enzyme activity continues. And by the time it gets, if it's, if it's left Cadiz in southern Spain, and it goes across the Mediterranean to Ostia, the port in Rome... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly how long a sea journey takes. They they don't go straight across because it's too dangerous. Right. They skirt skirt right. the you know the the coast of France. Um, maybe it sits at the port for a while as well, mm-hmm. and they give it a shake occasionally. And eventually, all the fish dissolve. The bone sinks to the bottom. You pour out the liquor. The bones stay in the in the vessel, and the vessel gets thrown away into a ditch. And 2,000 years later, we find we that the bones vessel. out of the piece. <laughs> we find that vessel with the bones in the bottom. Uh-huh. The sauce comes out as a thick liquor, which when you let it stand for a time, the fish paste floats to the surface. You can scoop it off. And that's called alec. Alec. So it's anchovy paste. Very similar to what's called... A-L-L-E-C, alec. Right? Yes. Very similar to what's called pisolat, which is a fish paste that's made in southern France in the Nice area. And there is some sense of continuity in mm. the sense that I think that's been made right through from Roman times to the present. So so what you were saying, the most of the fish sauce was made, obviously had to be a, a seafaring fishing ports, but mm. Spain and North Africa? Spain were, and North Africa, there are... In the empire? There, there are hundreds of fish sauce factories along the Cadiz coast, from Malaga mm. to Cadiz and, and in, into the, and, and west of the Straits of Still Gibraltar. today. Uh, yeah. Uh, where are there any other? Th- I mean, I, I find a lot of um, fish sauces. Obviously, the Asian fish sauces in the markets. Is there any commercial um, product available that it would be a more like a, a liquamen or a garum? Uh, Certainly not the garum. Uh, we wouldn't have just a blood there, sauce. You know? Yeah, <laughs> no. There are two two products that you can get. One is called Coloratura de Alici. This is this is made in the Bay of Naples. It's um, it's not a true garum or a liquamen mm-hmm. because they eviscerate the fish. So the enzyme activity that would harvest all that lovely nutrition and umami are not present. It's but funky, but it's light. It's funky, but it's light, yeah. yes. It's golden yellow. Um, and it's quite expensive. And sort of, yeah. in a sense, I object on principle because they waste so much time eviscerating and they shouldn't shouldn't bother. Well, <laughs> well maybe you don't need to hire yourself out as a, con- a I, consultant, yes, you know. <laughs> I know, it's such a shame. And they're, I mean, they are really breaking into the market. They are. With, it, you know, it's it's too expensive for what it is. Colatura di Chitara, right? The yes. Alishi, Alishi, which is the well, word for I mean, the town anchovy. of Chitara. Oh, but, Ch- Chitara, yeah, but, yes. But it's yes. made from, from yeah. anchovy. Yeah. Yes, of course. Mm. Uh, the other product that I would recommend if you want to use a Lequaman fish sauce is the uh, um, Vietnamese fish sauce called Red Boat. Yeah. Because it is made with very low levels low of salt. salt. Yeah. And so it's got a very, very nice umami flavour and it's very high in nutrition. 
you could survive quite nicely on it. If you've ever made a, a thick stock and reduced it down to a syrup to freeze in mm-hmm. little cubes, and that's really sticky, well, that's what that fish sauce is like out of the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so rich. And You know, it's interesting because um, I, not having a that type of a sauce was not part of the American... Um, diet originally you know mm-hmm. and nor the british really and but we used a lot of and you have a similar thing and you know, for that umami flavor a worcestershire sauce well, yes yeah. of course which has anchovies, it has anchovies in, it. in it right yeah, yeah but it's got about 20 30 other ingredients yeah yeah exactly so it kind of becomes very much more dense uh yes but yeah. so fishing so fishing was big business I, and mm. I loved there was a, a you were asked a question at a, an event the other night which mm. I, I thought was interesting so because okay you just don't see the, the Romans roaming around mm-hmm. <laughs> making their own fish sauce it was a big business oh absolutely yes yeah. and I think to a certain extent it was a piggyback business in the sense that the army were controlling the trade in many of these products because they needed it for their soldiers. Of course. And so it travels into into Gaul, it travels into Germany, it travels into Britain because the army wants certain things and so... They march on their stomachs. Exactly. So (laughs) all these products travel north. Um, It's difficult to work out how economically viable it was in terms of modern economics and that's the problem we don't really understand how the roman economy worked because and i suspect it actually worked much better than we think simply because they weren't too worried about profit <laughs> yeah and they it's had a big the dole i mean they you know they well, supported people who they did they, they supported people who were on a list and if you weren't on the list you didn't get supported true. so yes it was and that list was quite small that you know the number of people on that dole list were were, were restricted and there was a constant supply, or um, slaves were being freed all the time, onto uh, to sink or swim under their own steam. But very often, those slaves were were trained in a skill, and and therefore they could earn, earn a living. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, what you um, you have described in your book that Garam was really more the the king of sauces or the yeah. elite sauce. It was, I think. Um, why? Because it's harder to make. It's uh, well, of course, it's it's. There's a huge problem here because it is made from fish rubbish, and yet writers like Marshall talked about it being noble and um, so expensive and so uh, um, mysterious. And oh, it, it, they they probably overdo it hmm. in their in their in their enthusiasm. <coughs> excuse me, for it. Um, so there's a real problem about how... And I think there's a sense in which some Roman gourmets secretly think they're being conned. Mm. But it is interesting as a product. It's a table sauce. So finishing sauce. Finishing yeah. sauce. And it's black and glossy. And you pour it onto cooked food and it it's um, it just adds a real punch of a, of, of a different kind of umami mm-hmm. to the food. I think, I think the Roman gourmet handled the bottle myself. It's very difficult to prove. It's not there in the texts. Um, we hear, for instance, from, from Marshall that oysters from Lake Lucrine in the Bay of Naples uh, have arrived and all they crave is garum sociorum, which is the finest of the garum sauces. Uh, which may have been made from mullet blood and liver. Mm. 
and viscera rather than either mackerel or tuna. That's hmm. the, the sense we get. Why? Uh, why? Why do you think that? Uh, it actually is a little snippet of something in Pliny when he, in passing, says, Apicius um, thought it awfully, awfully nice to um, to kill, but I think he means cook mullet in a garum sociorum, oh. in a garum of their allies, in a garum of themselves. So you make a garum sauce, which this is a di- this is where I'm. Um, this is one I'm, of your proposals. You're, you're yeah, positing this. It's yes, not, okay. it's not. We're not sure because I don't <laughs> think there's any evidence at all anywhere else for garum sociorum being used as a cooking as a medium. Cooking medium and so, not as the final sauce. Exactly. Huh? But he says cook or kill in a garum of our of our allies, and the mullet is therefore being cooked in a garum made from mullet. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, but it's one of these little throwaway lines in Pliny, and you just go, you puzzle. Yeah. Well, you've talked, too, about the, the sauces being like we have um, t- today and have forever, but the, you know, the pressings of oils, the first pressing, second Absolutely. pressing. Yes. Well, so what they would, how, what would they do? Well, I think um, for a time, archaeologists assumed that the first liquor to come from the fish tank would be the best. With the, with olive oil in mind, I think pro- probably. But actually, the longer you leave it, the better it is. And we do have references to fish sauces being stored for up to two years. Uh, there is reference also to salted fish being stored for four years. I do know that when I made my fish sauce, I left um, some of it unfiltered for a, quite a long time, and its nutrition doubled from the sauce I extracted from the fish paste. Hmm. So the longer you leave them together, fish paste and liquor, the enzyme activity continues and continues. Um, the other fish sauce, we've talked about Alec, we've talked about Garam and Lequam, and the fourth one is Muria. And this is the, the brine that you would store salted fish in, uh, any kind of salted fish, but I think in terms of the bulk of the trade, it's either mackerel or tuna. And this can be aged for four years. Hmm. Now, I would not want to eat tuna that's been sitting in brine for four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I suspect what is happening is that it's uh, the offcuts of the tuna carcass, little bits and pieces, and actually it sits in there and generates a really good quality muria over, that, over those years. And it, as it matures, it they think it, it gets better. We, talk, we hear that salted fish that's old, aged, is quite desirable, but I don't think they mean four years, I think they mean six months. Mm. And so, possible that the tuna comes out at some stage and is sold quite cheaply, or it's left in there completely for four years. Um, I've salted uh, some tuna for two days. <laughs> And that was a sauce enough for you. That was a sauce <laughs> enough for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, and then a lot of times the um, the raft, or if you will, the paste that floats to the top, would be if if it were still had every, a lot of other things in it, would be given to slaves. You've, you've mentioned well, in your book, right? Yeah, I think no. I think what what used to happen is the liquor was poured off the bones in a in a form that flowed, so it came out of the amphora as a liquid. And so the bones stayed in the amphora. All you need to do is put a cloth mm. over the top to stop the bones right, coming out as you it, pour. Right. Therefore, you have what's, what's called an emulsion, which over time separates out. And then you can take the alec off the top, and it is relatively bone-free. 
and I think that was given to the slaves. One of the issues is that there was an assumption Alec must have had bones in it and the slaves were uh, um, were given it because that's all they were entitled to. Somehow the product must have been uh, a combination of fish bones mm. and fish paste because they couldn't imagine, the archaeologists couldn't imagine how the bones came out of it. But I wanted to say that it's always a source first and the source is liquid and it flows and it's and very the, easy and to... the dense e- items would sink. Yeah, the it's very easy to extract yeah. the bones and so yeah. you don't have to assume that slaves are eating a bony fish paste. And I think it somehow says more about our perception of what slaves would expect than anything about how, how the slaves. Romans were treating yes, them. Right? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Yes, Interesting. Yes, yes. Well, we're going to talk about some of the recipes um, from your Cooking Apicius book mm-hmm. and, uh, and those that have some garum in them as uh-huh. well yes. when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past, and Bob's Red Mill is one of our generous sponsors of programming here at Heritage Radio Network. And you know, I wouldn't actually be endorsing their product if I didn't use it or were a fan of it and believe in it. In fact, Bob's Red Mill Almond Flour has been a product I've been using for a long time. Um, I've used almond flour in a lot of my baking over the years. And I do like Bob's Red Mill. It's, you know, a lot of times you'll get almond flour that has kind of a gritty uh, gritty texture to it. And I think it must be the stone grinding at Bob's that changes the quality of this. It's fluffy. It's actually a, you know, a, a softer, fluffier flour. I really like to use it when I make fruit tarts. And we are getting upon that season because there's just something, rather than grinding up the almonds, using an almond flour makes the crust what do you want out of a crust? Flaky, all right? You want it a little flakier, you want it lighter, and I love the texture and the flavor that Bob's Red Mill Almond Flour gives it. I encourage you to go to bobsredmill.com. Check out their whole line of products. You'll be pleased, I guarantee. And don't forget to use Taste of the Past, all one word, Taste of the Past, on your order for 25% off. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Sally Granger. Sally is an authority on Roman fish sauce, garum, and uh, and Roman cooking as well, ancient Roman cooking, the cooking of Apicius. In fact, um, her book, Cooking Apicius, which came out, what, about 10 years? 2006. 2006. Yeah. A lovely little book, kind of. It also, um, at the same time, she wrote the, the classical cooking with Andrew Darby, but this book, you have, you explain all the items in the beginning and then you have recipes that are for the modern kitchen and it's as though I'm reading a modern day cookbook mm-hmm. I mean uh, things that we would well we might not always eat stuffed kidneys but no. you know <laughs> but there are a, a lot of the omelets and the and roast pork and uh, wonderful things like that what to you are there any recipes that to you are the most um Say indicative you feel of the cooking of the period. Apart from the sauces that we talked about before, right. the oinigaram sauces. Otherwise, um, it is. It, you have to think about how the Romans dined. They they dined lying down, 
And so they were only using one hand to eat and they were eating with their fingers. So no matter how elaborate the food might be in terms of roasts of whole joints and so on, it all gets cut down to, into little pieces. They had carvers. They had carvers, <laughs> yes. They had specially trained carvers right. who worked on wooden models of animal carcasses so they can work out where the best meat <laughs> was on an antelope or whatever. So it's all it, it's little pieces of food in a dish and a little bowl of sauce. So that's how meat is served. Um, otherwise you have what's called a patina. This is a frittata. And they're very common. I, I think of an omelette, but you're right. Yes. It's more of a frittata because it has so many things in it. Exactly. Yeah. It's very dense with fruit, vegetables, meat, fish, with an egg batter. And they can be quite deep too. You can line a deep dish with uh, vine leaves, interlayer multiple different kinds of fish and meat and vegetables, uh, and then pour on the batter, fold over the vine leaves, sit it on top, or actually inside embers of a fire, put a lid on top, and then put the embers on top of that, and the whole thing bakes up like a cake. You then turn it out and peel away the leaves, and you have this, think about four or five inch deep mm. frittata that cuts like, like a cake that you can pick up. And there, there are a number of recipes like that in Apicius, and I've had a go at making them on an authentic charcoal fire. And it's complex, because <laughs> you can't really get... It's very hard to get the egg in the middle to set. Um, but I've done, I think I've done it once. Huh, I've made it work. Yeah. yeah. So they were very, very common. And, of course, once set and actually lost some of their heat, it's cut up and it's perfect. They firm up more. For, right. pi- for picking yeah. up, yeah. Yeah, in the hands. As we always say, frittata is good picnic food. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Serve it the next day. There's lots of reheated pork, and the story is, I think, that they're serving at at important banquets where they have special guests, whole roast pig, and it it actually goes back in the kitchen. It's not left there for people to pick at. The cooks are, are are carving it off and are are storing it overnight and are reheating it the next day. Saying, hey, we can get a couple more meals out yeah. of this guy. Right? <laughs> I mean, obviously the, the household slaves are being fed too, but yeah. that sauce that is then made with this reheated pork is more spicy than normal, and of course that's sensible because you're then making sure that it's safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, a 20 or 30 recipes like, like that. Take a roasted shoulder of pork, it says, yeah. and turn it into a sauce. And did they eat stuffed dormice? Yes, of course. Well, they, they did, did. Yes. yes. And I have never been able to, sadly, because every dormouse that I've ever had access to, and I have had a few, um, has been poisoned because it has been yeah. it's been it's been killed by rat poisoning because uh, they are a protected species. So, uh, and I, if, if I ever if I ever confess that I would like to, people get very shocked, and <laughs> dis- disturbed. So yes. I don't tell anybody. Open your minds, people. Come yes. on. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and as far as a lot of the herbs, let's talk about some of the herbs and spices that were commonly used there that maybe we all know about now, but some we don't. Yes. Yeah. Well, cumin and coriander are the dominant spices. So basically we're looking at curry, mm-hmm. sweet and sour curry. There's a lot of oil, wine, vinegar, fish. She says with honey. a smug British look on her face. Yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> um, but a Malaysian curry, I think, because they are much more, much sweeter. Um but the other spices, I mean, pepper is is the, the most important one, I think. It's the most desirable one. It came from India. It was very expensive, but only in terms of relative value. Ordinary people aspired to it and had access to it mm-hmm. uh, because every family, no matter how poor, actually has a rite of passage feast where they have pepper. 
we get that from text. Uh, and we find Pepper, we know Pepper was found in Roman Britain, associated with the yeah. soldiers, so it, it filters down. It's not just for the elite. But the other spice that's most interesting, uh, and, and it's also quite pungent in the same way as fish sauces, is something called silphium. It had a, a reputation for being a cure-all, an aphrodisiac, and a soporific. It can't be both. Um, and uh, it's, it's got a sort of a rotten garlic, uh, fermented garlicky taste. It's a resin. It came initially from Cyrenaica in northern Libya, but finally died out. I think we hear, we hear from Pliny that the last stalk of the plant was given to Nero. Yeah, they lamented the the, the fact that there was no more sulfur. There was right? no more sulfur. Yeah. But it's an exquisite flavour when it's roasted, just like garlic. If you've never had garlic before and you taste it for the first time, you will probably probably wince. But if you roast this resin and put it with a chicken and some wine and a bit of fish sauce, it is heavenly. Now, asafoetida has been yes. known to sort of substitute for it, but... Quite early on, in fact. Really? So asafoetida, as in um, the substitute for sulfur, was in the market parallel with, with Silphium probably for the last hundred years before Pliny notes its demise. Mm. Because in Apicius, we have a recipe which actually says if you have um, either use Cyrenaica uh, or Parthian Silphium, they still called the Isopatida from, from Parthia Silphium. Oh, interesting. So it was considered to be sufficiently similar. Well, and it's still um, a popular ingredient in Indian cooking. Oh, a lot of yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. I have I have some friends, uh, I um, th- who um, have family in Kabul in, in Afghanistan, which is where it's now grown, and I get on a uh, every two or three years I get a little packet hmm. of freshly harvested isopatida from the plant. It's still wet. Oh, interesting. Which yeah. the Romans would never no, have No, we had. only see the powdered, exactly. know, the, the, yeah. the powdered the stuff. The smell and sort. taste of the fresh, wet resin is just amazing. Um, now, as far as the herbs, they used a lot of savory, of course. And, savory, uh, coriander, parsley, thyme. Lovage. Lovage is lovage. very important. Not a herb, it's a spice. Interesting. I grow it in my garden. And yes. It looks like an herb to me. Yeah, no, no, no. It's the it, it's the seed. It's the seed. They use the seed. They use the, the seeds. Seed. Oh, yeah. It, it's funny. Every single recipe that calls for lovage um, lists the lovage at the beginning with the pepper, and then lists other spices before it goes on to herbs. So and then you a, so you surmise that they yeah. were using the yeah. The and seed in fact, there is a. There is a list of, of spices and ingredients that you need to keep in your kitchen if you want to be a good cook that comes in a, in a much later, late, a late Latin sauce. And um, there is a name. There is, these, are your, these are your condiments, these are your spices, these are your herbs, and it comes under, under seeds. Under, under spices. Interesting. It's, oh, quite, good. it's quite a bitter spice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the leaves are like celery in the, in the stalks, but it's got a, you know, it has that yeah. aftertaste. Yeah. Um, Rue. Now, rue is something that people think, oh, they, you know, that you can't get it. Panic. There's rue. a panic over rue. Yes. I, I, I have a beautiful plant in mm. my in my garden upstate in my country house, and not only do I have one, but it is self seeding. Yeah, really. And oh, that's now awesome. all of a sudden I have like five different yes. plants. I'm giving them away, you know, and they, they grow in between the stones. Yes, yeah. But it is that was used. I mean, we don't find rue well because there are some 
there are some some, some problems problems with it. With yes. it yeah. I mean, if you use a large quantity of it in a tea, it's a it's a um, it's a it's a dangerous to consume it. But on a tiny in small amounts, it adds another kind of bitterness, and mm-hmm. bitter is good. Mm-hmm. Salt, sweet, sour, and bitter. You want all three or four mm-hmm. to have. Uh, I think a a satisfying taste in in the mouth and so I'm always very careful with it Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have a huge plant in my garden and um, I've shared it with a number of people over the years and what beautiful thing is it's perennial and it just and it gets more beautiful every year it's very pretty as well and the seed heads too are used yes yeah 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 yeah. you just have to be careful with it Mm -hmm. yeah and then I remember that. Yes, yeah. they always said my rue was always known to be poisonous. And, yes, uh, um, if you if you pick it in full sunlight and you have sensitive skin, I have seen somebody come out in enormous blisters. Really? Yes, really quite uh, ugly blisters. So you just if you if you are prone to to being sensitive, uh, pick it in the shade. Pick huh? it in the shade. Okay, yes. <laughs> that's good. What? Tell me about um, like orders <laughs> of of um, the dishes of some of the recipes, would there be certain things as we would know as appetizer, mm-hmm. main course? I think the Romans actually invented the concept of the three-course meal with the little little appetizers to stimulate the palate at the beginning and then the main roasts and the whole fishes at the end, it, in the middle, sorry, and at the end you have more often savouries than, than desserts. And in fact... Savouries such as... Well, um, stuffed dormice are served <laughs> as a final course. Um, and for dessert, we have stuffed dormice. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. But often it's just fruit and nuts and cheese mm-hmm. and, and olives and things like that. Uh, uh, and there's a, there's a, um, a phrase, um, soup to nuts. Yeah, you start with soup, you end with nuts. Well, that, that actually works with the Romans because nuts, nuts come in at the end. Um, and it's eggs to nuts in the, in the, in, in the Roman world because you would have a, um, a soft-boiled egg with a sauce. Mm, always start. the sauce. Don't forget the sauce. Right, right, exactly. And the sweets, there were a lot of sweets, um, but they were incorporated often with the, the meats or the savouries, were they not? Like, I'm thinking dates and... Lots and of sauces were very rich and thick with fruits. Yeah. Fruits and, yeah, dates and figs. Um, the actual dessert recipes that we had, that survived are quite quite small in number. Um, there were a number of bakery books that were written that we hear about, but they don't survive. Sadly. Mm. So, in Apicius, for instance, there's about eight re- recipes for pudding, as we call it. And one of which is for a custard, which is basically the recipe for creme caramel. With with honey instead of instead of caramelized sugar, and they would use a lot of date honey as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And something called defrutum. Defrutum is fresh grape juice reduced down to a syrup very slowly, sometimes in a lead pan, which is a little unfortunate, but we Mm. we don't do that. (laughs) And uh, you you can add add figs or dates to it, and it becomes very thick and rich. And it's called coloring, so they used it to add color to sauces. now, defrutum was left in oak barrels, and it soured. And hey, presto, you have um, balsamic. That's how balsamic was born. Aha! That's a whole other topic in itself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we could go on for hours about balsamic vinegar. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Sally, it is a pleasure to 
to hear. I mean, we could just go on talking, and you, you're a, a font of, of everything Roman, for sure. And uh, I look forward to one of these days when the work is complete. Oh, yes. You know, having that book. Well, you mentioned something that I think is very interesting, that people are setting fish sauces around the world, but you don't talk to one another. No. Well, the archaeologists that study the fish bones and the archaeologists that study the amphora and the archaeologists who study the fish processing tanks, the shipwrecks, and then the classicists who deal with the texts and modern manufacturers of fish sauce, um, people like me who do experimental archaeology, we need to actually um, conduct multidisciplinary research together. And that's not really happened yet. It's, I think it's. I think we're getting there. There's a. The, there will be a time. I think when it'll be a fully um, integrated. Research. Well, certainly, food and cultural history has has come up in the world as sure, being more important so than rather than just the you know the material yes, culture itself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I, I look forward to that day. I think I think Thank it'll you. be wonderful, and I wait yeah. to hear from it. Thank you for listening. My guest again has been Sally Granger. And her recent book on Roman recipes, if you're interested in trying to cook Roman, is Cooking Apicius. I think it's still available. It's it still is. in print. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, yes. terrific. Okay, and um, this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.